0: It's so wonderful to be with you this morning as we look at Matthew chapter 9 together. Let me pray for us. Our Gracious Lord, we thank you so much for drawing us to each other. We're safer as a flock when we're together than when we're scattered. Please, Heavenly Father, uh, teach us, feed us, nurture us transform us this morning as we meet you in your word may we know how to obey you in this world for we pray it in Christ's name amen some of you might know this book it's called the lucky country it was published in the 1960s talking about australia What fewer people realise is that when this author uses the phrase the lucky country, he's got his tongue firmly implanted in his cheek because he's trying to say something really cynical about Australia. We're lucky, we have mines, we have pastures, we have wealth. But listen to what he says in his concluding chapter. Australia is a lucky country run mainly by second-rate people who share its luck. It lives on other people's ideas, and although its ordinary people are adaptable, most of its leaders so lack curiosity about the events that surround them that they're often taken by surprise. But being laconic, and I think he's thinking that's a good thing about us, being laconic They take surprise in their stride. The very skepticism of Australians and their delight in improvisation have meant that so far, Australia has scraped through. It's a country more concerned with styles of life than with achievement, but it's managed to achieve what may be the most evenly prosperous society in the world. It's done this in a social climate, largely inimical to originality and ambition, except in sport. Isn't that scathing? Speaking about Australia's prosperity and Australia's uh, kind of laconic personality, but speaking of Australia's leaders, is really sharp. We've been blessed because of our natural wealth, but we've been a bit lucky because our leaders have just scraped through. And sometimes it's the case in the church as well. We've almost had good leaders accidentally. Leaders in the scriptures are a sign of God's blessing on his people. When God blesses his people, he gives them good leaders. When God chastises his people, he does not. This sermon is about how we can pray for leaders in the church in Melbourne. And Jesus was a great leader. In those first few chapters of Matthew's gospel leading up to the passage we read this morning, Jesus has begun his public ministry and he's had people flocking around him. He preached a wonderful sermon on the mount and the crowds were amazed. They'd never heard someone preaching with authority like that. He offered moral leadership for Israel. Then in chapters 8 and 9 in Matthew's Gospel we have these wonderful snapshots of Jesus healing people, travelling and preaching showing how he cares for spiritual and for our physical needs. And even in the passage that uh, Georgie read for us this morning, we've seen Jesus exercising that compassion and the people would say, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Jesus was a great leader. Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, which is not really part of my sermon this morning, goes on to call 12 apostles, and then for the rest of Matthew 10, he gives them the first ever theological college syllabus. He trains them, having appointed them. He sends them out, two by two, to preach and to heal. Jesus was a great leader from whom we can learn wonderful lessons, and the first of them appears in Matthew 9 verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Jesus proclaimed the good news or the gospel of the kingdom. He's preaching but he's preaching a big plan of God he's not merely speaking about an individual's obedience or an individual's repentance he's speaking about God's big vision for the world he could have spoken about the king that was him he's speaking about the kingdom all that he can do for the world through his own leadership He was God's king. He was God's son. He was showing his authority over the world by preaching and by healing. He wants those who listen to be part of a bigger story. Don't we love being part of something bigger? He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's not preaching a gospel of convenience, what will make your life easy. He's not preaching a gospel of happiness, what will make your life happy. He's not even preaching a gospel of prosperity, what it means to have wealth. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news about God's plans for the world, of which we can be a part when we repent and place our trust in Jesus Christ. This wonderful paragraph where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for leaders begins by speaking of Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So well might we ask, what's a Christian Quite simply, a Christian is a person who's aligned themselves with Jesus' plans and purposes for the world. A person who's repented of their sins, placed their trust in Christ and follows his agenda. A person who's on the same side as Jesus. And even this morning when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we'll be receiving from God, but also when you take the elements, you're showing that you are on Jesus' side. That's where you belong. You've become a part of the kingdom and want to demonstrate it this morning to all who are here. He's been preaching and healing. But in verse 36 we read, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And we might think the next phrase would be, he had compassion on them because their bodies were unwell. He's been healing, right? He's committed to their physical wholeness. But actually, in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd it's not what we expect that sentence to finish with he had compassion because they didn't have leaders they were harassed and helpless they were torn up they were shredded they were thrown down the original words make clear He had compassion on them not because they were ignorant or because they were ill. He has compassion on them because they don't have leaders who will guide and nurture, teach and correct. And the word compassion is a word that literally means Jesus' guts were torn. This is a a visceral kind of reaction. Jesus feeling immense pain because there weren't any leaders to help them. In the Ezekiel reading uh, from chapter 34 that was brought to us, we see a picture of God's leaders being wicked, False shepherds who were damaging the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. So what does God do in Ezekiel 34? He says, I'm going to come and be the shepherd myself. I will send someone after my own heart, King David, who will look after the sheep. The Lord in Ezekiel 34 can't bear it that the shepherds are doing the wrong thing. So God says, I'm going to turn up myself. I'm going to do it instead. Have any of you seen the show, I think it's on Netflix, called Ted Lasso? Some of you might have. Ted Lasso is a magnificent show where an American coach turns up to be the coach of an English soccer team, Richmond Football Club. He doesn't know the first thing about soccer, right? That's, that's part of the, the comedic device. He has no idea. The club is dysfunctional. The players are tearing themselves apart and the owner of the club is doing nothing but making himself great. So a kind of naive American turns up and through his own kindness, and through his own vulnerability, actually, as the series go on, he makes of this dysfunctional club something actually quite beautiful. He wasn't an alpha dog kind of leader, but turns up and exercises a really effective leadership amongst these players who were harassed and helpless almost like sheep without a shepherd. But you could walk down Ligon Street this afternoon and see people in cafes, wealthy, attractive, well-dressed, laughing, and not leave Ligon Street thinking they're just harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. But that's exactly what Jesus would have thought, right? If Jesus walks down Ligon Street, he, his heart would be broken at these people who on the outside look whole and happy. But he knows that that wealth, that health, can do well in disguising what's going on in their heart. One of the greatest needs in Australia, are good leaders who have compassion. And that's the case for the church, but it's probably the case for our nation as well. After all, in Ezekiel chapter 34, the shepherds are not describing the leaders of a church or a religious community. They're talking about the nation of Israel. That's what the shepherds are doing. I don't think we're very good in Melbourne or probably not in Australia either at identifying, spotting, training, encouraging, nurturing, sending the next generation of leaders for the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus then does something kind of a bit odd in verse 37. He's been speaking about shepherds but now he speaks about harvests and fields he changes the picture he says we read in verse 37 the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few ask the Lord of the harvest therefore to send out workers into his harvest field in verse 36 Jesus has been torn in the guts so upset at these sheep without a shepherd, but now he gives us some practical action point. It's not just that Jesus is feeling in the gut. He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, pray, he's saying, to send out workers into the harvest. In Ezekiel 34, we read a picture of God providing himself, the king, to lead the people. And now, Jesus, when he's turned up, when the king is here, when the sheep do have a great shepherd, he says, I can't do it by myself. The very moment when the great shepherd of the sheep turns up, Jesus asks us to pray for others to help him. We need more labourers in the harvest in Melbourne. There are between 40 and 50 vacant parishes in Melbourne at the moment. We have, I think we have about 220, 230 parishes or something. So between 40 and 50 parishes, that's almost a quarter of Melbourne parishes are vacant. Our diocese provides very little money for theological education unlike other dioceses in Australia. And I could name the 40 vacant parishes, but then I'd have to have a long list when I speak about all the opportunities overseas that are calling out for leaders for various kinds of ministries. I often get phone calls from people asking for names. For me to suggest people who might take a parish or be a youth leader or a children's worker and so on, I got a phone call not too long ago from a layman retired in Adelaide who was working for the Archbishop of Adelaide kind of in his retirement to help find clergy for parishes. That's not a bad thing to do. He said, do you have some names for me? And I said, well, I might have a couple. I might have three or four. He said, oh, no, I need 50 and I said, I, I, don't, I don't have 50 names to give you. He said, not even Melbourne has people to provide for us in Adelaide? And I said, well, perhaps it's a good moment to suggest the Archbishop of Adelaide he develops a new policy, but we won't go into that right now. <laughs> the opportunities are enormous, but the workers for the harvest are few. So this semester I'm preaching I think about 10 or 12 times in various parishes around Melbourne uh, with this message asking parishes to do this could you please redouble your efforts in praying in praying that God would raise up new workers for the harvest. Now of course I first of all want you to thank God for the people who invested in you, who nurtured you in youth group, who led you in your confirmation, who've mentored you over the years. Please think today about those people and thank the Lord for those who invested in you. Please as well tap on the shoulder people you think might be might consider vocational ministry they might be in this parish they might be others elsewhere it's worth you asking the question are there anyone else that i could encourage and nurture and support and if you find that there are people that you could suggest they enter christian ministry i'm sure I'd find space to have a coffee with them, even if they are in a parish in Adelaide or something like that. So you can thank the Lord for those who invest in you and tap people on the shoulder. Get my email address after the service is finished. But behind all this is the appeal to you to pray. And amazingly, Jesus tells us what to pray. He hardly ever does that. We hear in the Gospels of Jesus retiring to pray, going to a quiet place to pray. That We see that relatively often. But it's only twice he ever tells us what we should pray. He tells us we should pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And he prays us, he tells us to pray, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This must be important for Jesus, right, given that he's spelling out the content of what he wants us to pray for. And even if it's not for you, you should still be praying as an individual, as a parish, in parish council meetings, wherever you might do it, that God would raise up others because it's your way of being loving to those other 40 or 50 parishes in Melbourne that don't yet have clergy. Not even speaking about how many phone calls I get each week for children's ministers and youth ministers, which are like hen's teeth. So how are you doing praying that God would raise up harvest workers in your personal quiet times? Or how are you doing praying for more gospel workers in your small groups? or in parish council, or in public intercessions. And thank you for your support of Ridley. We can't do it without the support of our partner parishes in Melbourne. And please pray for us. Please pray that God would send people to us and we'd be effective in caring for them and training them and stretching them and nurturing them towards christian leadership i had breakfast yesterday with a fellow whom i've never asked to consider uh, being ordained but god has done this extraordinary thing in his life just in the last couple of months and so we had breakfast and he said reese i think i want to become an anglican minister Uh, i was a little bit surprised to tell you the truth that is i haven't approached him because he's never shown any interest he goes to a Pentecostal assembly and, uh, it's, not, and he, it's never been his thing. But listening to his story yesterday morning, I thought, oh, praise you, God. Praise you, God, that you have been working in his life beautifully, subtly, dramatically to bring him to this point. There are lots of challenges, of course, in Melbourne and beyond. The culture is working against Christians and Christian leadership. There's not a lot of money for uh, training for appointing full-time ministers in lots of those vacant parishes. There's lots of opposition. I get it. I hear it. I feel it. But God is bigger than all those challenges. He has a heart's desire to give leaders to his people. Let's pray. Let's pray that he would do that in Melbourne this year. Friends, we might be a lucky country, but I think there are still some big challenges for our leadership in governments, in parliaments. We might have been a lucky church, having been blessed in ways that didn't reflect our forward planning, our forethought, our resourcing. So my appeal to you this morning is that we might, in days to come, think of ourselves not just being a lucky church, but a plucky church, where we're determined to pray and to work hard that God would bless our labours and raise up leaders for his people. For Christ's sake. Amen.